Hey, let's pray together. Lord, as we open your word now, I pray that you would continue to speak to us as you have already. Your spirit is here. You're indwelling every one of us who believes, who've received your grace. And as we gather, you've told us that you would be here in our midst in a way that you're not otherwise. And we sense it. We know it. You are here with us and we praise you for your presence. We thank you that you will now speak to us through your word. It's living. It is active. I pray, Lord, that you'll help me to to get out of the way so that your word might be heard, not only heard, but applied into every life as we see you exalted as Lord. So speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So you can go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Acts. We'll get there in just a moment. I've noted that uh, we're in a series now, uh, This Jesus. If you were here last week, we kicked it off. I noted that our whole theme for the year is fixing our eyes on Jesus. So the idea is let's fix our eyes on this Jesus, not that Jesus, the one that we have kind of created in our own hearts and minds. And so the idea is that I'm praying along with all of us here, praying for personal renewal in my life, personal renewal in your life, and then collectively as we experience it together, personal renewal gone viral really creates revival among his people. And then revival in a, in, a, in a community or a city in a nation. And I'm believing that as we fix our eyes on him, I know I've, I've seen it in my life, when I behold him, I'm changed by him. And ultimately, that's what the word of God tells us. When we see him face to face, we're changed by him and we'll never be the same. We looked last week at this idea that we all need to recalibrate everything about our lives back to this Jesus. So it stands to reason we must see him for who he is. And as we do, everything comes back to him and we align our lives to him, not the other way around. We looked at some radical examples. How in the world does this Jesus get co-opted by certain groups, movements like the KKK? How could it be that movements like the Crusades or even the Conquistadors or the Rwandan death camps, how can we say that this aligns with this Jesus? When, 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 when certain people or movements or ideologies don't look anything like the Jesus we find in the Gospels, how can he be co-opted by certain groups? And it, and it begs the question, how might I have then created him in my image? How have I pulled away? from this Jesus and adopted beliefs that are not aligned with who he is and then subsequent actions that drive my life that aren't aligned with the person of Jesus. It's the question I want us all to ask in this month and really throughout this year. This Jesus is a phrase we see throughout the book of Acts and today we're gonna see it three times in the first sermon ever preached. Imagine this, think about it. This is the sermon that launched the church. Now that we know the, the birth of the church took place in the resurrection, the reality of the risen Lord, but this sermon that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 2, go ahead and turn there, Acts 2, verse 22 through 38 is the sermon that launched the church after Jesus ascended. So everybody turn in in your Bible there and look, and, and I want you to be taking notes as God leads you and guides you, seeking to apply always, not simply to listen to me now but to let the Spirit speak to you and then apply the message. Or you might as well have stayed home today. 
And so now I want us to look at the text. Before we get there, I want to offer this. My daughter, Emily, uh, who now lives in LA, she's become quite the traveler. In fact, this week she's going to be in, in Bora Bora. Who goes to Bora Bora? Um, she, she's traveling and part of her work and such, but she prides herself now on being uh, able to just take a carry-on. Like she'll come visit us for a week and she's quite stylish and such, but she'll come visit us for a week and she'll bring a carry-on. Uh, just a, you know, just a light bag and she has everything she needs. And I don't know if you're able to do that. I'm not. Uh, and, and I'm not all that fashionable or, or fancy, but you know, when kids come along, I know you can't do this. If you're a young family, we started out with twins, right? And um, it, it's what's interesting. You pack when you have kids, everything is proportion really in ratio, direct proportion to how small the child is. Like you have the, more, the smaller the child, the more stuff you have. And then we had twins, so our packing didn't just double, it like quadrupled with clothes and blankets and diapers and car seats and bottles and, and, and on and on. And the larger your family gets, the more stuff you got to carry, the more complicated life becomes. Sometimes it can become that way in our, our lives of faith as well. You ever feel that way? Has your faith become so complicated? I just, sometimes I feel that way. You get so much stuff to carry along in this Christian life. I need to learn more scripture. I need to apply more scripture. How do I, what, what, I need more doctrine. I need to understand what the scripture says about my family, about my finances. Uh, uh, what does the Bible say about, about immigration or politics or, or abortion or human sexuality? Uh, uh, all the, what's the best Bible translation? Where's the best church? What's the best group? It gets so complicated. It just seems too much. It's just too much. And today what I want to do, because some of us feel overwhelmed at times, as if our Christian faith creates more anxiety if we need more of that in this age of anxiety. And today what I want to do is to help you place your faith in, in, in just an overnight bag. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm just going to help you bring it into just, uh, just to carry on. I'm going to lighten your load today. That's what I'm going to do. Because we're going to get back to the centrality of our faith. We've sung about it. I don't know if you've picked up on it. I mean, maybe not because of what we do every week. But the focus is Christ and him crucified. Many have turned the Christian faith into humanity and it improved. A religion that bears his name. Our message is Christ and him crucified. So it's not work harder, get better. I say this often. It's believe more deeply what he's already accomplished for you. And I hear many who say, well, Jeff, if I, you know, if I went to seminary, I'd know how to deal with this or that. I'm going to come to you. You have a doctorate. You can help me. No, listen. Today we're going to hear, really unpack the message that launched the church. Arguably the most impactful message ever preached by any singular individual who might be just, might just be the most uneducated preacher who ever preached. His name is Peter, and we find his message in Acts chapter 2. We're going to see that this Jesus was killed, he was raised, and we must respond. That's what we're going to pack together. Now, we're going to get there, but we're going to go deep. So we're going to dive into this message, but I want you to see how simple it really is. The first thing I want you to see, you can write this down. This Jesus was unjustly 
killed. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested. Now that word means provided to serve as clear evidence. This sets up the message here. The rest of this message. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now let me pause here. We're, we're picking up Peter's sermon right before the second of two major points. His first point that he's made, he's been preaching in response to the question. You can see it back in verse 12. The Jewish people have come together. If you know this story, it's Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover on the Jewish calendar. It's also now 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus because it happened that same weekend. He was crucified, Passover, raised again. Now 50 days later, they've gathered together and the, and the Jews from all over the empire have come together and they're speaking now. They're speaking all kinds of languages, but everyone is hearing and understanding the mighty works of God in their own language. The spirit of God has come upon them. And so the question is asked, what is going on? What just happened? And Peter, in the first part of his message, is answering that question. In verses 16 through 21, he's, he's, he's given an explanation. And he goes to the prophet Joel and he's saying, here's what's happening. Joel said that there would come a day when God would move among his people in a new way and it would be accompanied by, by signs and wonders. He's, wonders. He says, that's what's happening here. And then Peter moves to the second portion of his message, which is answering another question. What happened? What event occurred? What instigated this new work of God? What did we miss? Why now? He's asking the question. I mean, that's the question that he's, he's going to answer here. And what they missed was the event in all of history. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so what we'll see today in the back half of Peter's sermon in a really detailed way, we're going to recapture the centrality of the cross. Jesus, his cross, and the empty tomb. Consider again that this sermon is the one that lit the church on fire. That's my great hope today. He begins with the fact that Jesus is a real historical person. Notice he calls him there in, in verse 22. He says this Jesus, he doesn't say, he doesn't start with Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christos. He, he starts instead with Jesus, the historical person from Nazareth. Now he's, he's doing this intentionally. This grounds Jesus in history. He's a real person from a real place in real time. He says this Jesus and we know that history proves that Jesus lived. I noted this last week. We see this in history outside of the Bible. Josephus was a Jewish historian, wrote about Jesus. Tacitus was a Roman who disdained Christianity, wrote about Jesus. We know outside of the biblical text that Jesus lived, that he died under Pontius Pilate, that his believers claimed to have seen him after he was buried alive. And then they began to worship him as God, not on, on the Sabbath, but on Sunday, the day of resurrection. We know all of this outside of the Bible, but Peter goes a step further and he says, not only does his existence that's been validated, if you will, by historical record, he was here, but he says, we've seen him. 
I saw him risen. Many of you saw him. And if you haven't, and you're here now for Pentecost, if you haven't heard the word, because this is not the age of the internet, they didn't see this on Instagram or see it on some post or in the news. If you haven't heard about this yet, this really happened. And so he says then, look at what he's done. Even prior to what took place just 50 days prior, he says he did mighty works. Look how he plays this out. Mighty works, signs, okay, actions that pointed to his identity and who he was. Peter offers these as proof that not only did he, did he live, but these miraculous signs proved that he was the coming Messiah. In fact, uh, if you don't know this, Jesus didn't just go around healing because he thought it'd be a really cool thing to do. Like some, you know, like a magician. This would be great. Or let me even show, of course he cared for people who were hurting and he wanted to heal and bring restoration to people's lives. But every miracle he did pointed to the fact, like an exclamation point, pointed to who he is and to his kingdom. So his miracles were exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, D, and on and on. Theologian N.T. Wright He says it this way. He says, Jesus stepped out of the fog of the future into our present reality to show us what takes place in the kingdom to come. Jesus ushers in the kingdom. And then he says, in my kingdom, there is no sickness. Let's get rid of that. There is no death. There's healing and restoration So Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. In fact, in Luke 4, it's why he started out his entire uh, ministry as he quotes from Isaiah 61, which is a, by the way, a chapter all about the coming Messiah. And so Jesus says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set all set at liberty all of those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was the sign of the Messiah. And Jesus says, after he pronounces this, he says, this has been fulfilled in your presence right now, on this day. I could go on and on. These people knew, these are Jews who knew the Old Testament, much better than we do. So Jesus proves he's God's chosen one. How about this? Even before he's raised from the dead, he's already proven that he's the Messiah. So what happened? Despite the evidence of who he is, he was killed. So look at verse 23. This Jesus, there it is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So right off the bat, Peter makes two things clear. This same Jesus who was publicly executed just 50 days before, this same Jesus was killed, but God's plan was not hijacked by his death, just the opposite. It was part of the plan, fulfilling the prophecies, prophecies like Isaiah 53, verse 12, which says this, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, only the only way the Messiah could complete his mission 
is by suffering and dying because he didn't come simply to heal physical illness. He came to rescue us, to suffer and die and heal our broken hearts and our relationships that have been impacted by our sin. Only Jesus has done this. God's plan instead is confronted by sinful people like you and like me who become, watch this, conspirators, who become accomplices. And this is his point. Look at what he says. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, friends, get get your mind around this. You had religious leaders like me, envious and threatened by Jesus' power. And in his popularity, they orchestrated elaborate, elaborate false accusations. You had moms and dads from a major city going to, can I say it, going to Bible study every week, crying out for, God, for him to be crucified. You had, you had keepers of peace, even soldiers, unquestionably and brutally punish Jesus at the orders of their superiors. You had political leaders Use Jesus as a bargaining chip to gain public favor with their constituencies. You you had someone who was a Jesus follower who rejected his leadership and became, took on the role of formal accuser. People on the inside. I hope you see this. Jesus wasn't crucified by people that you and I would have called enemies or opponents. Jesus was crucified by people that you and I go to dinner with. Jesus was crucified by our business partners, by our friends. He was crucified by people you'll sit in class with this week. He was crucified by your golf foursome because you're in it. He was crucified by people who are neighbors and and, and the waiter that will serve you lunch today, perhaps. He, He was crucified by the person that will look back at you in the mirror tomorrow morning. Jesus was crucified by me, by us. It's why John Stott says this, before you can begin to see the cross as something done for us, We have to see it as something done by us. Friends, when I was struck by that again this week, by me, I was shaken to the core. And what is more, so much, significantly more, is that he did not deserve to die. He's the one person who did everything right. He's the one person who followed God, did everything he wanted him to do. Yesterday, we celebrated the life of Bob Herrera, right here in this place. A man who lived for Jesus. And at his best, Bob looked a lot like Jesus. But only Jesus, only Jesus has done everything that the Father wanted him to do, and they killed him. We would have killed him too. It's possible for us to sit back and say, no, 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 no. I would have, I would have been for him. Friends, nobody was for him. We killed him. He was 
killed. They, they killed him. We, we killed him. I killed him and we've unjustly sentenced him ever since. Like Pilate, we've accused him of being a tyrant and a dictator who wants to take away my freedom. When I've sinned against him, my joy, my rights to pleasure and comfort, we've accused him for being too strict, too old-fashioned, or maybe too loving. He loves people I don't love. He forgives people I don't want to forgive. I mean, there's been so much, even this week, made of, you know, Nancy Pelosi tearing up this. Everybody coming after her. Jesus loves her. Jesus loves our president. I've said it before. If Jesus hates the same people you hate, it's not this Jesus that you're following. It's not this Jesus that you're espousing. It's that Jesus. It's not the Jesus of Scripture. And so we've sentenced him. In, in many ways, as, as a public pawn or, or, or even a political pawn or as a T-shirt slogan or an, or an Instagram meme. And, and we've, we've, we just excuse him. We reject him. And when we do, we, we sentence him again. We've sentenced him to public scorn by using his name as a blank check for my apathy. Self-care, self-preservation, personal comfort. It's like the writer of Hebrews 6, 6 warns us. We have sentenced him to crucifixion all over again when we abandon him for our own convenience and our personal advantage. So what is to be done? Will God allow such an injustice to continue? Back to Peter and his train of thought. He will not. This Jesus was unjustly killed, but look at this. This Jesus was justly raised. It cannot be overstated, the importance of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, friends, it's game over. Jesus is just another failed revolutionary out of the first century, and there were many. He's dead, he's in the grave, he's decomposed, we're done. We can shut the doors and not come back again. And we have no hope. Without the resurrection, Our faith does not stand. We've got nothing. Cannot underestimate how important this is. And so Peter spends the rest of his sermon really talking about what this means for God's plan and for us. Because God overturns Jesus' unjust death by raising him up to bring justice. Look at what he says in verse 24. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held down. Now, Peter uses a really interesting metaphor here to describe the resurrection. He does this, or Paul does this as well. But here he's talking about death. He says that resurrection is like a woman who is about to give birth. Once she kicks into labor, there's no stopping the baby. It's coming. And here, Peter is saying, like the pangs of labor, he says, death is coming. And it's coming for every one of us. There's coming a day when every one of us will stop breathing here on this planet. And since Jesus then 
is, is imprisoned by death wrongly, God functions as a judge in a court of appeals and he overturns the death sentence because it was wrongly given. God being just and holy steps in. You see, Jesus gets a pass and nobody else does. Why? Because Jesus' death was unjust. He didn't deserve to die. And the great judge, the holy one, the righteous one steps in and says, I'm going to overturn the sentence. Though death is coming for everyone, you can't stop it. I will stop it here. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what, what Peter does, he goes to a passage in Psalm 16. And, he, and he, he's going to use David's psalm to argue that Jesus' resurrection now, not just that he lived and proved that he was Messiah, but now he proves that he's Messiah because he's the one that will forever reign on David's throne. And every Jew has been thinking this is coming. And if you know the story, the redemptive story of the whole Bible, this is where it's heading. And so in verse 25, look at what he says. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Every Jew had read that. These are the words of David. Now Peter's gonna offer commentary. He's gonna say, that's not David. David's speaking to someone else. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. You can go to it. His body is decomposing right now. He's not talking about himself. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, David, and not only king, but prophet, even priest, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would not set one of his that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ and he was not abandoned to Hades Jesus nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus look at what he says verse 32 there it is again this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses peter's entire argument is there's no way that david's talking about himself David died, he's buried. He's got to be talking about someone else. And so in places like 2 Samuel 7, David receives this crazy promise that someone's gonna sit on his throne and they're gonna reign forever and ever. Now to reign forever, you must live forever. You must be immortal. You must overcome death to live forever. And this is his argument. He's saying, David's not talking about himself. The Jews had never heard this before. He's now bringing meaning to the text that they had not heard. And now he says, if Jesus is raised from the dead, he has defeated death and he's now the Messiah on King David's throne, the one looked forward to. So Peter says in verse 33, being therefore exalted, watch this, he's not done, exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, So now he's tying this giving of the Holy Spirit, what took place just now, the giving, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into heavens, 
But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is he saying here? He's tying the pouring out of the spirit with the previous coming of the Messiah, who is this Jesus. You see, the the, the right hand is the place of power and authority. If you're sitting at the right hand of the king, you're his agent. You're the one who's implementing his agenda for the kingdom. Now, Jesus takes that place. Peter is saying this position belongs to Jesus, not David. Not the great king of the golden era of our history. And and, and the part that absolutely stops Peter's audience in their tracks and should stop us all in our tracks this morning is in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel I'd say it today. Let all the church of Park City's Baptist Church, let all of God's people know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom I crucified. He's Lord, he's Christ, he's leader, he's Messiah. And when we relegate him to anything other than that, friends, we're talking about that Jesus, not this Jesus. And wherever he is not Lord of your life, you're talking about another Jesus. He is Lord over all. And he demands his rightful place because he is the Messiah. He's the one with all authority. He's sitting there. He's in control of all things. And when we seek to take control, no wonder we live in an age of anxiety. We're not giving the Lord his place where he rightfully belongs. So this one who has proven to be the very son of God, you killed him. I killed him. And I don't know about you, but I get to this point, even having followed Christ this many years, I get to this point in his message and I say, what have we done? I'm sure that many people outside of Judas, I suppose, the religious leaders of the day, the righteous people, the the religious people of the day who killed Jesus, I'm sure they thought they were doing the right thing. They really did. He was a rebel. He was an uneducated rabbi. He did crazy things. He, He was running around doing magic tricks. But to be shown so powerfully through the miracle of the people speaking in different languages and for Peter to so logically and effectively bring this message together, even with their scriptures, it must have been crushing for them. And it should be for us. Jesus loves us. He desires to give us life. But we all need to wake up to the fact that he is in charge. He is Lord. We like to think that Jesus works for us. Jesus is not the right hand of God Almighty over all creation. He's at my right hand. We've relegated him to this this kind of personal assistant. We've, We've... We've sentenced Jesus to this dead-end job. 
being my personal spiritual concierge. How do you know? How do you pray? Do you pray? Or or you've got it. You're Lord of your life. You've got everything under control. How's that going for you? Instead, this Jesus, who was crucified, resurrected, and exalted to all authority, he's the one. So what do we do? What do we do with this Jesus? Well, finally, here it is. This Jesus requires just one response. This Jesus was killed unjustly. He was raised justly. And he requires just one response. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And I prayed all week long that God would cut us to our hearts. He said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Friends, that should be the question in everyone's heart today. What do we do with this? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now it's Jesus Christ. Christ the Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How about that? For every believer who receives Christ is the day of Pentecost. When you receive him, you receive his spirit. The response of Peter's audience should be our response today. What do we do? And the answer is still the same. Repent. Repent means to change your mind initially. But if you haven't changed your actions, if you don't change your actions, you haven't changed your mind. Those things were inextricably linked together. To say that you believed, that you've heard from God, was to say that you were going to live it out. Somehow in our Western mind, we've come to think, I believe that, but it doesn't impact the way I live whatsoever. And no wonder so many people can't find this Jesus among his people. If your behavior isn't changed, then your mind hasn't changed So does my life line up with the truth that has been shown to me? Because what you've been shown is that this Jesus was killed unjustly. He was was raised justly, but we're the ones who killed him. Every single person in this room is called to repentance. For some of you, it may be the first time. Maybe you've heard this and it's making sense for you for the first time. And today is your day to receive him. You're called to repent and to turn to Jesus. For some of you, uh, like me, there, there are areas of your life that you need to consider. That today would be the day when you stop playing games with this Jesus. And you allow him to take the throne of your life. And it's going to happen as we repent, which means we turn away. We change our minds, which means I, I was wrong. I've been wrong. I am wrong in this area, this area of my life. I'm wrong here. Jesus lived the perfect life and his death, though unjust, stands for us. And now even though you die, you will live forever if you receive his grace. Now, don't miss this. 
All of this happened on the day of Pentecost, which was a time where the Jews would come with their first fruits of the grain offering. Jesus, Paul describes him as the first fruit of resurrection, the first installment for all who would follow after him, those who believe, those who repent. So let me ask you, what about you? As we celebrated Bob's amazing life yesterday, what will be said of you when you leave this planet? What was said of Bob is he lived for Jesus. Are you living for him? Do people know it? Would that describe your life? Live for Jesus. But look at what he says. Repent. So some of you, today is the day of salvation. He says, and be baptized. Have you been baptized? Friends, this is not a small thing. It's not just, just a kind of an ordination, a thing we go through, part of a service every now and then. Somebody's, listen, repent and be baptized because in baptism, you are acting on your faith and you're saying, I have died, I'm buried with Jesus, but I still identify with him. I'm raised up, totally forgiven, and now I'm gonna live my life for him and him alone. He's king of my life. He's Lord of my life. Today you came thinking it was another Sunday and God is confronting you with truth that you need to respond to. And so again, after the service, we'd love to talk to you. Maybe you talked with someone you came with. You need to act on this. How will you repent? What is God calling you to? And friends, we all have different idols. So as we land this and consider, we, we have idols of materialism, comfort, some of us have made politics an idol, sports or success, affirmation, leisure, sex, money. What is it for you? And how have you created a phony Jesus to affirm all that? So the church was lit. 3,000 came to Christ. And then they went and told everybody about it. That's why we're here today. So let's pack up and go and do the same. But lighten up. This is our message. Jesus was the son of God. He was killed by me and all of us. God raised him up. He's Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we respond to this message that so powerfully launched the church, I pray that your spirit would move in power right now in the hearts of every one of us and that we would never be the same again. And Lord, as we think about your great love for us, it demands our, our lives, as we've noted, our all, everything, and so, Lord, as we are drawn to you, your mercy, your grace leads to repentance. So we give our lives to you. So as we ponder your great love for us, may we respond 
with great love for you.